0: All right, well, a little while back, while they were making plans for Joey to be gone, uh, Stu gave me a call and uh, said, would you preach on the 14th of August? You know, it's like way down the road yet. So I said, sure, because I'm a nice guy that way, and I like attention, so sure. Sure. Um, they I said, anything in particular was going to be in Galatians at the time? He said, no, whatever's on your heart. I'm like, okay, I'll preach on whatever's on my heart. So I started looking at scripture verses, and I got to Jeremiah 17. And it said, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can discern it? And I'm like, oh, no, I ain't preaching on that one. <laughs> I'll let Stu preach whatever's on his heart next time he's here, up here. Um, but a few weeks back in Bible study, uh, we're, we've been going through First Samuel. And a few weeks back, uh, we read through a particular portion in 1 Samuel 25. And I'm like, now that can go to preaching. So I'm like, okay, there's my sermon. And furthermore, I have to give Landon Headings, you know, credit pretty much for today's message, because it was the outline was there, the story's there. I just basically get to come up here and reiterate what our Bible study was about. Um, so I just really appreciate our small group. Uh, and I know twice a month I get to go over there to Kings Creek Road, to Nolan King's house, and I get a good steak, right? Right? We get some good meat in the word. We, we share with each other. We pray for each other, and we get some good, a, a, a good meal out of out of the word, and it's always a blessing. Um. So for those of you not in my small group, First Samuel twenty-five. Oh, here, on my way to a fight. This babe turned me right. A few days later, she became my delight. Anybody going with that? <laughs> who, who, who am I referring to? No? Uh, it's the story of David and Abigail. And uh, so I thought that was funnier than what you... No one really laughed. <laughs> it was a punchline there i thought that sorry about that so the setting in 1 samuel 25 here as we open it up and come into it is we have king david right now when he was about 15 or 16 slew he was anointed king and then a short time later he slew goliath became a war hero and at a certain point in time became a threat to king saul and, of course, in those days, when someone became a threat to the king, what did they do to that person? They just up and killed him. And not just them, but the entire household of that individual. And that's why Saul's daughter, Michael, wasn't with David. Because, you know, Saul wasn't going to kill his own daughter for David's sake. And so David is on the run. He's been on the run for a period of time likely just long enough to kind of probably be chafing a little bit at like, why am I on the run when God has called me to be king? I should be in the palace by now. But he's on the run and David actually isn't by himself. I think a lot of times maybe when we read through the Psalms, we might get this vision of David kind of holed up by himself back in in a cave hiding out from Saul But the truth is, is he had 600 of men who had joined him by this time. And a lot of these men weren't really nice guys. They probably had a falling out with Saul and said, well, I'm going to go with David then, you know. some of those folks, and they're probably a little bit irritable, you know, themselves, uh, a little rough around the edges, so to speak. But so this is the life that David had. And uh, what's interesting is just prior to this story, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. You remember that story from when you were a little kid? When Saul had to go potty, right? And he's out killing Dave, you know, trying to track David down. He goes into a cave, you know, to find a personal place to go potty. And David happened to be in the same cave as him. I wonder if David was downwind or upwind from him. I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't say, but and, and so David instead of killing him he just, you know, cuts off a corner of his garment. And why didn't David do that? Cuz David had the conviction that he was not to be the one to take out Saul. That was not his responsibility That was God's responsibility. And so we just saw David acting fairly noble, even though he, you know, kind of, you know, corn, cutting off a corner of his garment was a little bit of a slap, like, hey, I got you. I could have got you. A little bit of a nah, nah. But he, he could have killed him, and he didn't. So we, we see David in good character in chapter 24, but I wanted to make note of that Because the irony of that conviction In contrast to this story Will soon come into play So here he is on the run He's kind of in the southern part More of the southern part of Israel Down where it's more arid Because obviously when you're hiding out Up in out in the desert you, you You're able to get up into the hills You're able to get up into the Uh, the caves and the crags and places uh, where you can hide out more. But then there obviously were times, and we'll see that in this story, where they then, you know, unlike central Ohio, where everything is fertile, right? I mean, you got green everywhere you go. But let's just say 30 miles from here, you had a little bit of of, um, Arizona in Ohio, right? So that's a little bit of a mix that they have, in Israel in terms of the terrain and the the land. So there would be times then when David and his men, probably when they weren't being actively pursued by Saul where they would move over into the more fertile areas because they had to make a living, right? They had to, feeding 600 men plus probably some family members who were along. We don't know what that all looked like, but so this is all going on, right? In the context of this story. And uh, I'd like to start out with verse uh, one from Samuel, 1 Samuel 25. Now, Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. So Samuel was a judge. He was the last of about a 300 year period where judges ruled over Israel. And we see here now the last judge passes. Now, there was a period of time where Samuel had anointed Saul for Saul king and then David. And so there's some overlap between the two types of ruling. But this was God's original intent for Israel was to rule through the judges. You know, the judges were, they didn't have that, you know, aristocrat sort of regal presentation. like hey, I'm a somebody, and Israel was like, you know, other nations got kings, and look how wonderful their king is, and look how good they look, and it actually makes them look pretty good as a nation, and we got this bumbling judge over here. He's just this humble little guy, and so Israel was looking for appearances, they wanted to make a statement to the world that we're a somebody just like them over there sound familiar right we look to the world to find out what we should do next rather than the lord Um, but as the lord said go ahead give them a king because they're not really rejecting you samuel they're rejecting me and i'm assuming that at some level i'm going to take a little bit of liberty here Because I can do it without damaging, you know, doctrinally or theologically the story, but I'm assuming Samuel's death probably did something to David on the inside. I think it probably created a little bit of this spiritual vacuum in the land, and David felt some of that, most likely, because everybody knew Saul, even though maybe he played the part of being a good king or a good guy. Saul had his own issues. In fact, in just the next few chapters here, we find out Saul goes and seeks out a witch, you know, to talk to the dead. I mean, that's how deep uh, that Saul had lost his way in terms of turning from God. So I think this Samuel dying probably stirred up uh, David a little bit. And I think David was maybe chafing Not only from being on the run, but saying, man, it's time for, you know. I I mean, come on. David's a pretty godly man, right? I mean, after all, he's been writing some pretty cool songs, right? He's probably written about 20 or 30 of them by now. And they're making it into the canon. And, you know, thousands of years later, we're going to be reading about it. So, you know, David probably had a little bit of this going on on the inside. So now to the story. Verse two, and I'm gonna read verses two through eight. A certain man in Maon had property there at Carmel, which was, was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and a beautiful woman. But her husband, a Calebite, was surely and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Caramel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come to you at a festive time. Please give them your servant please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So here we have this introduction of a foolish Farmer, And of all means foolish, as we'll read here shortly. Now, he was a descendant from Caleb. Remember Joshua and Caleb? So this, he likely would have had a lineage that would have been honorable, you know. But he had truly fallen by the wayside. And it also introduces Abigail. Who, she was beautiful. She was a babe. Right? She was a hot woman right i mean you know i'm just taking literary license there so we have this going on in this picture being played out in this story and david apparently had his men as part of a way to make a living had been providing some protection for the sheep, because Nabal had all of these sheep, so after a while, when the grass gets a little low over here, he'd probably say, "Hey, man, going out a little bit further," because at that point in time, not everything was marked off for everybody's particular piece of property, and so hey, going on an extra mile or two. Well, the further they went away from home the more vulnerable that they would become to all of the different invaders, the, the Amalekites, the Philistines, who would at times come, raid, come in and raid out a, a, a territory and then just move right on. Well, David's men helped provide protection for Nabal's men and his shepherds. And like Bob Ravenstein said in our small group, at first he's like, you know, David got the Jewish mob going on here. You got a racketeering thing going on. And I just read through that and all the commentators that I read would seem to indicate that no, this was actually a legitimate sort of situation and service that would have been provided at that particular time in that season. So David then is simply saying, You know, I've done this for you, Nabal, and now it's sheep shearing time, right? Sheep shearing time is like, that's when all the money starts coming in. Because, you know, one servant say, hey, we got you the money for the wool for these 10 sheep. Here's the money, Nabal. And then the next servant, hey, here's the money from these 20 sheep that we sheared, Nabal. And so this this was going on. It was like harvest time in the fall for grains but this was for the shepherding time and it was also a time that you know it would have been kind of festive in nature and it would have been a, a good season and so we see this in David's request i mean he went he David was very civil about how he approached uh, nabal you know it was during the time that he knew that Nabal would have had money coming in. There would have been plenty of resources. It was also this festive time. They would make a, like a fall festival out of this, this season. And so there's a little bit of this partying, celebrating going on. So there would have been kind of this air of, hey, there's wealth here, there's money here. Let's, let's share the wealth a little bit. David even sent his servants rather than kind of posturing himself and going you know and david could have gone there himself and said hey nabal come on no he just sent his servants you know kind of like you know i'll take the easier route maybe less threatening or less intimidating and furthermore david made no demands on what nabal should give him i mean he he didn't say hey you owe me this or that he just he, he made no demands on it. And furthermore, he refers to himself as son, right? So he's taking this humble approach. You know, he's like purposefully identifying himself as lower than Nabal. In other words, I'm not here to make a deal out of this. This is a situation. Could you please help us out? Because we need support out here. We need to eat. We, we ourselves have... Uh, are in need. So, you know, so far in this story, things are going pretty good, but we see here soon it's about to go sideways. Because in verses 9 through 11, we're going to read Nabal's uh, response to David's request. Verse 9 When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Don't you love that? Who's David? And then he, who's son of Jesse, right? Like he knew who David was. Come on, he absolutely remembered when they would sing about David. Uh, Let me get back here. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Oh, wow. So, in short, Nabal's response was what? No. But not only did he say no, but he had to just kind of insult David here a little bit. You know, when he said, Who's David? Who's this son of Jesse? I mean come on this is a war hero at one time and they've all just kind of dismissing that he's just blowing it off and then you know he's secondly he's accusing David of being on the run as part of just he's rebellious He's a rebellious servant of Saul. Really, what he should do is humble himself and go back and serve Saul. That's what you should be doing, David. Why should, I give, why should I support you? You're in rebellion, David. So he's really misjudging this entire situation about David. And then thirdly, when he says, you know, that guy from who knows where, he knew where David was from. But it's his way of saying, you know, you're you're basically a piece of trash. We can discard you, David. You're a nobody. So here we see Nabal in his foolishness, right? And maybe at some level we've all run into a Nabal, right, in our own lives. They're the people that we run into who blow us off. They're the people that we run into who said something hurtful behind our backs or who's maybe stabbed us in the back. Maybe they've gone on to social media and said something about us and it just caught us completely off guard. Nabal is the person that we emotionally hold at a distance and maybe we just have a little bit of a... You know, kind of a grudge. Well, you know, since we're good Christians, we don't really have a grudge grudge. But, you know, boy, I hope, you know, if I never have to talk to them again, fine. And so Nabal represents the individuals in our lives that we tend to just kind of hold at arm's length. And we judge them back. We love we love it. We actually even kind of secretly smile when we hear maybe something negative or bad has happened to them, like,, yeah, they deserve that, just a little bit karma and then and, you know. You know, even good Christians get into the flesh that way. Sure do. Yes, we do. We can be very petty about our self-interest, our self-preservation, and our own identity and how we look in the community. And so we have to be very careful about this. So I've got this next section entitled David Gets Western here. All right. David's men, verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. So David's response, right? Um, I am David, son of Jesse, prepare to die. <laughs> Prince's bride, right? What is that, Montoya? His name is Montoya. Prepare to die. David isn't playing here. He's insulted and he is furious. He is mad. And he says, guys, get your guns. We are going to go and kill us some people. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And David is way out of order here. He has no spiritual authority to make such an order. And isn't it ironic that while he had this character and respect for Samuel and for Saul to not touch them, in and, and Saul's case, to not even touch the very one who was trying to kill him. Oh, well, this isn't Saul. This is just some... Um, Bad loss, bad guy from Caleb's tribe, you know, he deserves to die. And it's like he's he's willing to put innocent blood on his hands over an insult, over over mashed potatoes and gravy. I mean seriously, that's that's how that's the situation, that's the context. Because if if you know Nabal had probably sent some food. David might, well, that's kind of stingy, dude, but okay. We'll at least get one good meal out of helping you out. I won't work for you next year, but, you know, it likely would appease David. So David is willing out of being offended, out of offense, to go from here to way up here in the escalation scale. And here, I think we see why David's still in the desert, right? David's still in the desert for a reason. He's still a hothead yet who's not yet showing the kind of character that God wanted from his king. You see, while David thought Saul was his problem and he thought Saul was the reason that he was in the desert, the real problem was really that God was behind all of this setting this all up. God used Saul to put David into wilderness to build his character. When we allow our flesh to dictate our responses to people who hurt us or who offend us, who speak manner of evil against us, we reduce ourselves to their level and we become just like them and even worse, to be quite honest. There's no such thing as getting even. Either we're responding in a godly manner and dousing the fire, or we're escalating the fire with our flesh. You remember what Jesus said there in Matthew 5, and I found this interesting because the last time I was up here, I preached out of Matthew 5 where Jesus said, turn the other cheek, right? And Jesus wasn't advocating you to be a victim of physical violence that is not at all what that passage is that passage is what jesus was saying when someone strikes you on the cheek that was what the jewish people did to publicly insult someone back then and so jesus was saying when someone publicly insults you don't get caught up in it don't do it let them go ahead and insult you all the more because we're gonna see here pretty soon that when we turn things over to God, God can take care of the person who has hurt us and has offended us a whole lot better than what we can do, that's for sure. Because we get ourselves in a pickle when we take those things into our hand. When we respond in the flesh, the very thing we hate is what we become. One commentator put it this way, hurt done to you can hurt what God wants to do through you. When we respond to others out of our situation, out of our flesh, we abort the purposes and intent of God. And so we have to see when we find ourselves in these difficult situations or with difficult people, we have to see that something bigger is going on behind it all. And that's something going on behind it all is the Lord. Verses 14 through 19 now. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the field to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults instead. So he's reiterating what just happened to Abigail. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Day and night, they were a wall around us. All the time, we were herding our sheep near them. So this servant is just affirming exactly what David's point was in coming to Nabal for some support after all. Now think it over and see what you can do. Because the servant's like, your husband, he's an idiot. He's a fool. Not going to deal with him, but, but we know you're smart, Abigail. Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Hang on. Where, but yeah, Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five, five dressed sheep, five bushels of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of preserved figs, loaded them on the donkey. Then she told her servant, go on ahead and I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal." All right, so here we see Abigail now coming into the picture full force. And we start seeing the kind of woman and the kind of character that she had. Not only was she a beautiful woman, but she was smart, and she was just like a businesswoman, right? She had her own restaurant, right? She ran a restaurant. She was industrious. Furthermore, she had some chutzpah, right? You know, as the servant was coming to her and saying, they're going to come, and they're going to be killing all of us. You know, they're going to make sure that your husband and all these men around here die. And <laughs> No, she just looked right back at this servant. There was no time for self-pity or tears for her. She She grabbed the bulls by the horn, so to speak, and she put her leadership skills into use. And then she did the best thing that we can do when faced with fear. She just walked right into it. She came up with a plan, and she walked right into it. She turned her anxiety into action. Then she showed her wisdom and sent the food truck on ahead, right? Because she's probably aware talking to a madman with a full stomach is a little bit better than talking to a madman on an empty stomach. In fact, if they stop and take time to eat maybe things will cool down just a little bit. Now, verses 20 through 22. And as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, so if you can kind of imagine, there's a mountainside where David and his 400 men are starting to, are marching down. And she's coming in from the other side, coming down into the ravine, and they're probably going to meet somewhere up down in this ravine area. Um, All right. There were David and his men descending toward her, and as she, and she met them, and David had just said, now listen, <laughs> listen to David, he cracks me up. Well, it's not funny, but it is. It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He had paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely. If by morning I leave one, alive, I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Oh man, is David into himself or what? Man, he is doing in his own mess, isn't he? He's worked himself up into a lather. He's thinking about the situation and the more he thinks about it, the more worked up he he gets. And apparently, the food truck that had come along a little bit earlier, he just, you know, was ignoring it at this point in time. And what we see here is what we often do ourselves, right? When we've been hurt, when we're mad, when we're upset, when we're getting out of control, we just kind of think about it, think about it a little bit more, and the more we think about it, the more, oh, no, we could get back this way. No, oh, I have a better idea, self. We could get back this way. Oh, that'd be really good right so we start thinking about all these different ways and not only that he's building up this moral justification right like oh all of this work that i've done for him and how he's paid me back evil for good what's david doing paying back good for evil yeah no david's paying back really bad evil for a little bit of evil And then only that, David really crosses a line in my mind in this passage, in these verses, where he gets into kind of this uh, persecutory self-righteous, like, may God deal with me. Oh, now all of a sudden, David's bringing the Lord into his decision-making. He's bringing into the Lord into his self-righteousness. And he's starting to do this. You know, in scripture, when we talk about taking the name of the Lord in vain, there's different uses of how we go about taking the name of the Lord in vain. And this is one of them. Where we're calling our response into flesh, something that God is honoring. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And that's what's going on here. And David is just, he's just kind of beside himself. I'm just glad that David didn't pen a psalm at this particular time. Or maybe he did. It just never made it into the scriptures. So, verses 23 through 25. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear hear what your servant has to say. May the Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that my master sent. So here, here we start now getting into the reasons why it's like uh, this, this passage here can go to preaching, right? Because we see the characteristics that God wanted for David in Abigail, and we are going to see in the bigger picture that God wanted people like Abigail around David so that God could use David for his purposes. Number one, she was willing to lay down her life. She was willing at don't let this pass us by. When she approached David, he could have squashed her like a bug, people, seriously. And I wonder if her looks maybe didn't have something to do with saving her skin. I don't know. Probably knowing how much David was into flesh, right? <laughs> uh, I'm mad. Whoa. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm mad. I'm mad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's just like men, right, women? Amen, women? Yeah. <laughs> So she approaches David at the risk of her life. And not only that, she takes on this Christ-like characteristic of being willing to even take the blame. And say, he's an idiot. I know you have every right to be mad, David. He insulted you. You're right. I agree with you 100%. But... For my sake, David, for my sake, I'm, I'm willing to. I'm willing to be here. And please listen, listen to me, David. We see this example also in the life of Esther. If you go read the book of Esther, which our small group had gone through, where we see this characteristic of christ likeness in uh, Esther going before the king, not knowing if she would be killed for doing that. And so, uh, a tremendous characteristic of Christ that the Lord loves to see developed in all of us. And then she's humble about this. Now, I, I just want to say this. She's probably wisely humble because she's approaching an angry man. And she, she's aware of that. She aware She's aware of the mission he's on. She's aware of what he can do. But she could have approached a little bit more from the standpoint of moral indignation, like... You know, David, come on, and she, she, and she could likely have uh, scolded him a little bit, like, no, I've got the moral high road here, David. Now listen to me. And She could have tried maybe shaming him a little bit or guilting him, like, now, come on, David. You know, you're a little bit out of control, and, and you know, I know that the Lord wouldn't want you to do this, David. No, she doesn't do that. She actually bows. She takes on this form of a servant. And you know, we do ourselves a big favor when we're responding to hurt and insult by first asking the question, can I or should I play the role of a servant in this? Because when we do this, it takes an attitude out of our edge. You know, because sometimes when people treat us wrongly and then we approach them, we might be even right in what we say, but we take a little bit of an air of condescension, you know, like, well, let me tell you how this, you know, and, and what we're saying is true. But the tone and the attitude by, of what we're saying is carrying an upsmanship, is carrying an attitude. And she doesn't do that here. She just remains in this role of being a servant. And then she saw that she saw David for who God had called him to be and not by his actions. Amen she saw david for who god was building him into she saw david for how god saw david as someone who one day was going to rule and reign over israel she didn't just identify david by his sin and this is another area of reminder for us that when we engage ourselves with other people when we're in these situations with individuals, and they hurt us, or we just don't like them, or there's these personality clashes. We have to be very careful to not label them based on their behavior alone. Amen? And so, in this situation, she saw David. She had a discerning spirit. Now, are there times in life where we need to separate ourselves from people who are truly toxic and unhealthy are there true neballs in our life absolutely there are times where we need to make that choice and make that decision but it's all about this attitude and approach that we take getting there because the difference that between her calling her own husband a fool right and her bowing to David in the midst of his sin, is that she discerned the Lord. She was in touch spiritually with what was going on, and that's the key. That's our challenge that God has for us. You know, we're so often kind of making decisions and choices in our lives based on what we see in the moment based on what we, people choose churches out of that like oh man look at that good program they got there you know look look what they got going on over there and look boy their pastor he can really preach a good sermon you know that's not necessarily where the blessing comes from right the blessing comes from the calling that's on that individual's life And are they submitted and yielded to that? And we're going to see that here just in a few minutes. Verses 26 through 31, Abigail's wisdom continues. So she's in the middle of speaking to David. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal." So she's saying, you know, since the Lord, she's saying, I'm here to stop you. The Lord has sent me here to stop you from shedding innocent blood. And you're, you're not gonna go and avenge yourself with your own hands, are you, David? And now you just imagine David now starting, I'm not, huh? Oh, I thought I was. And no, you're not going to do this, David. I know that you you think you have a right to do this, but no. I'm here because the Lord has sent me, and this, I'm reading words into this, of course. From uh, the Lord is keeping you from shedding innocent blood here. Verse twenty-seven, and let the skiff which you're and let this gift which your servant has brought to you, to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Verse 28 Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. David, you're going to make a good choice here. I am? You're gonna do what's right here, David. Really? Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master, hang on, hang on. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. No, I'm not. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle in the bundle of the living by the lord your god huh what's this she's prophesying over him and now she's saying you know this you're you're securely in the bundle of the living that's a sweet picture isn't it you know if if i gave you ten thousand dollars and I told you, you have to go to King's Island tomorrow, and you gotta have this ten thousand dollars in your on your person while you walk around all those people. What would you do with that ten thousand dollars? Man, you would find a place on you that no one would get to, right? You would be tucking it all up. And and I'm taking just a little bit of liberty here, but the thought crossed my mind, you know, is like. You know, the, the robes, the ancient robes of old, you know, where, you know, you've got all of these flowing robe, and then there's these little pockets in there, and you can't, you're not even really aware that they're in there. And it's like she's saying, David, even though you're on the run and all of this is going on, God's got you in your pocket. Don't be jumping out of that pocket. Don't be jumping out of this safe zone that God has got you in. I mean, now that really goes to preaching to us, right? Whatever the situation's going on in our life, whatever the challenges and the things that we chafe against and the things that we don't like, God's trying to use those very things to build a characteristic within us that reflects him. And she's saying that even though you're on the run and you think Saul's going to get you, she goes, God's got you hidden in his pocket, man. Don't be getting out of his will now. Don't be exposing yourself prematurely. Love that. And then for the lives, this this next uh, verse 29. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Oh, now she's really preaching. Now she's really pouring it on. What is she doing here? She's reminding David of where he came from and the calling that first came on his life. Remember the sling, David? Remember that? Remember that original calling when you first went up against Goliath? David, you went up against Goliath in the name of the Lord. Are you coming up against Nabal and my household in the name of the Lord today, David? No, you're coming up in your own. She rebukes him for his previous comments about trying of taking the name of the Lord in vain. She's rebuking him in a very wonderful way, in a very prophetic way here in this passage. And so she is, she, and, and I just even wonder, maybe, was she even there that day? Did she see David from afar, from a hillside somewhere? Did she see what he did? Did she then know what God was up to, even though Saul was still on the throne, and even though Saul was still in control? Did she discern in the spirit what was really going on? I would like to think so. So when we approach individuals, when we deal with the situations of life, is it in our name or is it in the name of the Lord? And then finally, I'm just going to kind of close this down and summarize this story by reading verses 32 and verses 35. So after all of this, you know, verse 23 up through 29, these six verses, um, sorry, five verses, verse 24, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. And then verse 35, then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. There we get a glimpse of why David was chosen. There we get a glimpse of why David was called a man after God's own heart. Because when he was, the truth was presented before him and kind of put in his face, he goes, Oh, you're right. I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I've been doing this all wrong here. And I don't know the rest of the story, right? Abigail Abigail goes back home, talks to her husband about what happened, and she told him what all had happened. I don't know, apparently some sort of heart disease, he had a heart attack of sorts or a stroke of sorts. And this infliction falls upon him, and 10 days later, he dies. And a short time later, Abigail becomes David's wife. Now my question is, when we let the Lord take care of our situations, can the Lord do it right or what, right? The so Lord is the one to make these judgment calls on the situations and difficult people that he brings into our lives, not us. The truth of this story, God can, exact just, can execute justice for us so much better than what we can. God is very interested in building character in our lives. And many times, he'll use difficult people and difficult circumstances to accomplish that character building. And number three, God's always at work. Some of us just need to hear that this morning. God's in control, people. You're okay. God's got you. I mean, unless you're walking out of God's pocket If you made your confession in Jesus Christ, God's got you in his pocket. Even as hell breaks loose around you, God's got you in his pocket. You're okay. It's going to be all right. Even in this crazy world we live in, God is still on the throne. He's still at work, and it's up to us to go in the name of Jesus as we encounter all the stuff around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Just for how a simple little old story from thousands of years ago just goes to the very heart of day-to-day life. It's so good, Lord, to just see that you're at work even when we're out of sorts even when we're out of control. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't have that assurance of knowing that they're in God's pocket even when they're out of control, even when they're missing the boat, so to speak, but that there's a stronger arm of the Lord than our sins or our fleshly ways. Lord, I I pray that right now, They would recognize the need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and say, I don't know all about it or what it all means, but I know I need a savior to help me through this thing called life. Lord, I thank you for that assurance we can have this morning. I thank you that you are in control, even in the middle of a world that seems to have lost its way. And that there's each day as we avail ourselves, there's moments to be in Abigail in the lives of others. Give us that wisdom. Give us that discernment. Give us that hope. Amen.